Hello, and welcome to episode number 34 of the Simple Faith Podcast, where we are exploring authentic Christianity for normal people. As always, we are ditching those unexplained churchy words and focusing on all the things that make our faith what it is. If you're new to the show, we have covered a whole bunch of things like what does the Bible say about tattoos and swearing, rules versus principles, the performance culture in church. We've done a broad overview of the Bible, LGBT in the church, tithing, and a lot more. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, make sure to go check that out. Yes. And as of recording, here's a cool stat. Our podcast has had 2,300 listens. Now, I know in a world of YouTube superstars and podcast giants, that might not sound like much, but for us, that is 2,300 individual listens of shows that we have made. And so we are so grateful for every single one of you who have taken the time to listen to us uh, on your walks to school or on the combine during harvest time or on your family road trips or just at home while you're chilling out, figuring out all this lockdown weirdness. It means the world to us. In fact, assuming that every listener persevered to the end of every roughly half hour episode, which let's face it, you probably didn't. That would be over 1,150 hours of listening to us, which is crazy, or just under 48 continuous days of listening to us. That's mad. So thank you. Thank you so much. We so appreciate it. Yeah, that is, that's awesome. Yeah, like Dave said, we just want to say thank you to every person who's taken time to listen to this podcast and also to everyone who has sent us messages and feedback. We always love to hear from you guys and we've also been so encouraged by so many of you. Absolutely. So today we are talking about communion, also known as the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist or coming to the table or breaking bread or one of the sacraments or an ordinance of Christ or the holy sacrifice or the memorial of the Lord's passion and resurrection. Basically, there are a lot of names for it. And it's a critically important part of the Christian faith and one that doesn't often get a lot of attention, does it? You know, I think I can probably speak for both of us and say that we found that many people are loosely familiar with the importance of communion, but uh, it becomes something that we often take for granted, really, I think. So today, let's talk about what communion is, why it's important, and then we'll maybe get to some really crucial distinctions between certain strands of the church, and we'll see where that takes us. Yeah, so starting with that first question, what is communion? So at its most basic, communion is the act of eating bread and drinking wine in remembrance of what Jesus did for us on the cross. It's called an ordinance because it was ordained or instituted by Jesus himself when he lived on the earth. So in Protestant churches, by the way, there are two ordinances. There's baptism and communion, but the Catholic church has seven. Um, that's probably not a conversation for today because we're focusing on communion today. But the point is this, because Jesus ordained baptism and communion, they are extremely important to the church. So today we're going to look at what he said when he instituted uh, communion or the Lord's Supper, and then we'll see what the rest of the Bible teaches us about communion as well. So there are three places where Jesus's institution of uh, the Lord's Supper are mentioned. You have Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22. That's Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22. Now, Luke 22 is a little bit different to the first two passages. So let's take a look at uh, Matthew 26 and Mark 14, which are almost identical. In fact, Sherea, why don't you just read the Mark 14 passage? Because that will give you a good idea of the Matthew 26 passage too. Yeah, for sure. So Mark 14 verses 22 to 26 says this, as they were eating, he took bread, 
blessed and broke it, gave it to them and said, take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. He said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Yeah, so I'm going to be really honest here. When I, when I first read this as a new believer, I thought it was super weird. But the more I learn about the Bible and who God is, the more incredible this uh, really short passage becomes. You know, Firstly, uh, the passage says that Jesus took the bread and blessed it. And that's really cool. But in Luke 22, the author says something slightly different. He says that Jesus gave thanks. He took the bread and gave thanks for it, uh, which essentially you know, it means the same thing as blessed. And we see that also in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. Instead of uh, blessed, Paul says, given thanks. Uh, the Greek word in both cases is eucharistasis, which, by the way, is why communion is sometimes called Eucharist. It means to give thanks. So that's just an interesting detail. But secondly, when Jesus is sharing the wine, he says this. He says, this is my blood of the covenant. What does that mean? Well, you might remember, if you've been a follower of our podcast for a long time, that we talked about uh, covenants in the first few episodes of the Simple Faith podcast. There are a number of promises from God for his people. There was one with Noah, one with Abraham, one with Moses, one with David. And when Jesus died for us and rose again, he ushered in a new covenant or promise uh, where everything changed. And by the way, that's why our Bible is split into Old and New Testament. Testament is like another word for covenant, which is why the New Testament is all about the new covenant with Jesus and what it means for us as believers. So, I mean, already there's a few things there. Hopefully I haven't lost you there, but we're seeing that this is where it, the, the word Eucharist comes from. And also there's a new covenant. Something big is happening. But the question is, how does the Luke 22 passage differ? You know, like we've already talked about, there are a few word variations, like um, he uh, gave thanks instead of blessed, but essentially the passage is the same. The only real difference is that Luke talks about uh, Judas being his betrayer, where well, he doesn't specifically mention Judas after the meal rather than before. So other than that, it's pretty much the same. So we have three passages, almost identical, where Jesus does pretty much the same thing. Right. So you've talked about how the Lord's Supper is mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, but what about the Gospel of John? Like, is there anything about communion in that fourth gospel? Yeah, that's a really good question because John is slightly different to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's a, it's a very different style of book compared to the other three. And interestingly, John doesn't actually mention the Lord's Supper at all, specifically, but there's a really interesting account that he does include in John 6. He says this in, um, I think, verse 35. He says, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. And so what we're seeing there is that ages before Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, where he uses bread to represent his body, he's, he's already calling himself the, the bread of life. So there's some pretty major symbolism going on there. And of course, Jesus turns water into wine in um, John 2 as well. So I don't think those things are coincidences, you know, that he describes himself as the bread of life and turns water into wine and yet uh, doesn't mention the Lord's Supper. I think that's uh, an important detail. So there's Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 6, where he calls himself the bread of life. And as we've already hinted at, Paul actually writes a few really important things about communion in 1 Corinthians as well. So uh, 1 Corinthians 11, let's look at that. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul reminds his readers of Jesus's words, and then he adds this crucial detail in verse 26. He says, 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So one of the things about communion is that it's an act of proclamation, but we'll get to that in a little bit as well. Uh, The next section of chapter 11 is really important too. Shreya, could you read verses 27 to 29, please? Yeah, it says, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Yikes. (laughs) Yikes. <laughs> that kind of sounds like a pretty intense warning that we should pay attention to. Yeah, I think you're right. It's something we really have to pay attention to. You know, we're seeing just from this passage a few extra details. Uh, it, Paul's saying that it's important that we eat the bread and drink from the cup in a worthy manner. And that has something to do with recognizing the body, whatever that means. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, so, with all that in mind, let's summarize what we've seen so far because we've really blitzed through this. Communion is the act of eating bread, representing Jesus's body, and drinking wine, representing Jesus's blood, in remembrance of what he accomplished through his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. It reminds us of the new covenant with God, and we proclaim it until Jesus returns. And we have to eat the bread and drink from the cup in a worthy manner, recognizing the body. So that we have to figure out what that means in the next section. Okay, so that's what communion is. And in the next section, we'll talk a little bit more about some of those finer details and delve a little bit deeper still. I have a communion horror story that I'd like to share, actually. I have a lot of horror stories where I really basically embarrass myself all the time. When we were at Bible school, I was assigned to this amazing church in a place called Kamloops in British Columbia. And pretty quickly, I was playing on the worship team. And uh, the first time we took communion together as a church, I also happened to be uh, on the worship team for the first time. And this is a recipe for disaster in my case. So as the bread and the wine, or you know, in our case, it was grape juice actually, was, was passed around, we had to stay on, on stage. And you know, I don't know if you know this, but every church seems to have subtle differences when it comes to uh, how they lead communion. And I was doing my best just to slot in and go with the flow, but it was only really my second church that I'd ever been a part of. Um, I was handed a plate full of those like little communion shot glass cup type things, totally filled to the brim with grape juice. And while the pastor was talking, I thought, oh yeah, I better pass it to, I pass it around the band and make sure I'm doing the right thing. So I passed it to my friend Drew. And as I was reaching out to pass it to him, he shook his head like, no, no, no. And he was obviously panicking because I, I was doing something wrong. So I wrenched the the plate back just to try and be as discreet as possible. And in that process of wrenching it, I forgot the laws of physics and all the cups just fell. And my guitar got covered in grape juice and my arm got covered in grape juice and the floor got covered in grape juice. And everyone could see me on my first Sunday on the worship team. It was only a small church of about 70 or 80 people. And every single one of them could see me as I made a total fool of myself. No one else had any grape juice in our team to take communion it was awful. It wasn't my favorite um, moment, to say the least. So now I'm always terrified of passing around the bread and the wine or the grape juice. And so if you ever see me uh, really tentative, if you get to take communion with me, that is why I will be freaking out to make sure I don't make the same mistake I made 
on that day in Kamloops. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> that's a pretty great story, but I would be I would be mortified if that happened to me. So yeah, not fun. But it would have definitely made it to fail army, I think, if it had been recorded. So that's a plus. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. So the question is, why is communion important? Not because there's opportunities for you to embarrass yourself. There's actually a lot of important reasons. It's important because reminding ourselves of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus is the most important thing there is, isn't it, Sharia? Yeah, I mean, that first communion with Jesus and his disciples was during what was called the Passover Supper, uh, which was a meal that the Jewish people had every year in order to remember how God rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. And Jesus has now replaced the Passover Supper with communion as a way to remember how he has saved us from our slavery to sin and to death by dying on the cross as payment for our sins and then being raised back to life and conquering death. Communion really at its core is just a celebration of the gospel. And it's always, always important to remind ourselves of the gospel. Yeah. And it's so easy for us to think of the good news of what Jesus did for us as you know, that basic stuff that we move on from. I feel like I'm saying that every week on Sundays at church because it's not, it's the most important thing. It's it's the thing that our lives revolve around, that this universe revolves around is the, the greatest truth that Jesus died for us and rose again. Um, communion is also important because it's what we see in Acts 2. Do you remember we talked about Acts 2 last week? If you're a regular follower of this podcast, we regularly dip into this passage in Acts 2 verses 42 to 47 it it shows us a picture of the church flourishing and you know we we love that we want to be an Acts 2 church in it, certainly in, in Red Deer Alberta where we are uh, doing ministry in, in verse 42 it says this they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching to the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer you know it's it's important because that's what a thriving church looks like is one that, that takes communion together regularly, that breaks bread together. And finally, it's important because it's a declaration of faith. It's us saying, yes, this is what we believe. This is what we want to live our lives around. So those three reasons, again, it's important because reminding ourselves of the gospel is a big deal. It's important because that's what the early church did and they were thriving and that's what the picture of a great church. And it's important because it's a declaration of faith every time we take communion together. So clearly communion is important, but there's so much variation in how communion is done, right? So what does it mean to eat the bread and drink the cup in a worthy manner? Can we talk about that? Yeah, let's talk about some of those variations because I think they're hilarious actually. So when I was at a big church, a church of about uh, a thousand or so, communion was really logistically very tricky to do. So after about, I think I was about there, I'd been there for about five years. And then they started doing this thing that we used to jokingly call in the office, easy jet communion. Now, if you are from North America or somewhere else in the world that isn't European, you won't know what easy jet is. I, I'm guessing easy jet is like budget airline, cheapest of the cheap, easiest, uh, low cost way of getting around Europe. What you easy jet might not even exist after COVID is done. But anyway, that's, just, that's beside the point. But we used to have these little uh, like cups that were covered with a plastic sh sheet and underneath it was this little wafer so that you could distribute them to like a thousand people and take communion together. So we used to joke that it was called EasyJet Communion because it was a quick turnaround. So 
Some people do EasyJet communion. Some people do full on bread, big, you rip from the loaf, dip it in the cup. Some people do it once a month. Some people do it weekly. Some people do it every three months. Some people do it just at prayer meetings. In some places you have to walk in line to the table. Uh, some places you have to serve each other. Some places you stand in a circle. Some places you have to drink wine. Others you can drink grape juice. Some Sometimes there's gluten-free bread. Sometimes there isn't gluten-free bread. Sometimes there's crackers. There is a lot of variation in the way that communion is done. And that's just how I have experienced communion. I went to a Christmas uh, midnight mass thing at a Catholic church once and had to kneel down and take communion. They probably wouldn't have served it to me if they knew I wasn't Catholic. But yeah, the, the, the truth is there is a lot of variation and there is a lot that is in, open to interpretation. You know, as you saw in that that passage, those passages in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's a lot open to interpretation. It's important that we don't become legalistic and let our heart grow cold towards taking communion, that we end up taking it for granted. That's really important. It's kind of like, you know, when we say grace at mealtimes, uh, if you are thanking God for the food that you have, it's so easy to take that for granted and make it this, legalistic ritual and we don't want communion to be a ritual we, we want it to be a, uh, a wonderful celebration and declaration of what jesus has done yeah that's so true uh it is a celebration which is awesome uh but going back to that warning that we get from paul in first corinthians what does it mean to take communion in an unworthy manner yeah I know I didn't really answer that question the first time around but I think it's important that we recognize there is a lot of variation and a lot of open interpretation but what does it look like to take communion in an unworthy manner? There isn't really a definitive answer, but there's a really helpful article from the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry, which is called CALM for short. Uh, they gave six possible interpretations. I'd love to read those out. It says, it could be that those taking the communion elements needed to be fully aware that they represent the sacrifice of Christ by which we are redeemed from sin. Therefore, to participate in communion while not understanding this would be to take it in an unworthy manner. In other words, I, I take that to mean you need to be a follower of Jesus to take communion. Uh, and not just that, you need to be a follower of Jesus who understands what communion means. Uh, the second possibility, they say, is that taking supper with willful, unconfessed sin would be in an unworthy manner. The third reason, the earlier context of 1 Corinthians 11 seems to suggest that taking communion in an unworthy manner means to do so while you have a problem with another Christian with whom you are not reconciled. So unconfessed sin or unreconciled uh, dispute. Another view is that some Corinthians were using communion as an opportunity for self-indulgence, which is why Paul mentioned about how some got drunk in verse 21. Now, we didn't talk about this, but I heard this hilarious story about how uh, Catholics used to, oh shoot. You know, another view is that some Corinthians were using communion supper. Another view is that some Corinthians were using the communion supper as an opportunity for self-indulgence, which is why Paul mentioned how some got drunk in verse 21. There's a funny story here. I don't know if it's true or not, but there's, there's a rumor that Catholic preachers, another view is that some Corinthians were using, Okay, and they say that number four is this. Another view is that some Corinthians were using the communion supper as an opportunity for self-indulgence, which is why Paul mentioned about how some got drunk in verse 21. So there's a story. I'm not sure if it's true, but as it, it, people, uh, how do I start that? Uh, the fourth reason that they suggest is that some Corinthians were using the communion supper as an opportunity for self-indulgence, which is why Paul mentioned about 
how some got drunk in verse 21. So some people were supposedly getting drunk from communion. Actually, there's kind of a funny story about that. Apparently, uh, Catholic uh, preachers, itinerant preachers, in other words, preachers that would go from church to church to church, uh, they would go on horseback to three or four different churches in a day. And we're talking hundreds of years ago. And as they did, they had this particular belief that we'll talk about a little bit later, which meant that they had to finish the wine entirely. So they would hand out communion to people and anything that was left, the priest had to drink. And then they would move on to another church and do the same thing and then move on to another church. But if there was a lot of wine left over, apparently these uh, Catholic priests would end up absolutely wasted by the end of the day. Now, again, I don't know if that's true, but it's, it's a rumor. I think it's a funny one. The fifth view that they suggest is that both elements, both the bread and the wine, have to be taken together, not just one on its own. Otherwise, uh, that would invalidate communion. And the final view that they suggest is that the person taking communion must be worthy in order to take it. Um, but this view, they say, is dangerous because no one is worthy to take communion supper. Our worthiness comes from Christ and not ourselves. So there are five really good options there. First, that you need to be a believer. Second, that you need to confess your sin. Thirdly, that you need to make sure that you reconciled your uh, disputes with people. Fourth, uh, don't get drunk by taking communion. And fifth uh, is that you have to take both the bread and wine together. They're all good options. We're not 100% sure. That's the thing. Yeah. And I think also it's really important to remember that God sees our hearts. So even though communion is a celebration of the gospel and remembering Jesus's sacrifice for us, it seems to also be a really good opportunity for us to do some self-reflection, not because we need to be perfect in order to take communion, but actually just the opposite. It's a really good reminder that we are imperfect people who are unable to save ourselves. Um, and that's why we need Jesus. The good news of the gospel only has power in our lives when we understand how powerless we are to save ourselves and what Jesus has saved us from. Yes, go on, Shreya. Well, well said. That reminds me of a really important question that I think we need to discuss. Uh, here's the question. Are the people leading communion responsible for making sure that people are taking communion in a worthy manner? Or are the people taking communion responsible for making sure that their hearts are in the right place before they take communion? That's a, that's a tough one. Yeah, that's a good question. I think my understanding would be that ultimately it's between you as an individual and God. Like your leaders aren't necessarily responsible for that. But I think that leaders can help people understand communion better and and I don't know, maybe maybe ex explain beforehand. Like, no. It's tough, isn't it? Because I think, you know, I, heard, I read a story actually that a Catholic priest refused someone communion because they were pro-choice. Um, and I've seen other stuff about people who have, you know, just skipped over certain people in churches. And I, it just seems like a recipe for disaster. Now we have a real responsibility as shepherds, as, as pastors, but I think our responsibility is in the teaching of, of communion. And like you say, when we, when we take communion, remind people that communion is for believers and um, remind people of the, the spiritual weight that comes with taking communion. In fact, even as I'm saying that, I'm feeling convicted in my, my own heart that I don't maybe do as good a job as I perhaps could when it comes to communion. I think I forget sometimes the spiritual weight that, that comes with that. Mm, yeah, yeah. I think leaders in a church can, can help people understand communion better and, and 
um, how important it is and to go into it with a right heart before God. But ultimately it is, it is between you and God, I think. Yeah, I think I would agree with that, but it's, it's tough. Um, you, your church might do it differently. And as long as you can um, back it up with good biblical evidence, then that's cool. And by the way, if you have any strong views that can change our minds, we are totally happy to, to hear those. You know, I, I'm, I'm not firm on this. I'm open to having my mind changed for sure. Uh, so hey, I just thought, thought that was a really important question that we tackled before we finished. Yeah. There's, there's some other stuff as well, I think. Yeah, yeah. So before we finish, we should definitely talk about a really big word, transubstantiation. I think I said that right. Transubstantiation. It's kind of fun to say, but it's definitely like the epitome of a churchy word, right? So what does it mean? Yeah, transubstantiation is a really important word in uh, communion. Um, here's what it means. You know, we know that something spiritual is happening when we take communion, right? It's an important spiritual exercise that has been ordained by Jesus. But Catholics would hold to the view that when we take communion, the bread literally transforms into the body of Christ and the wine literally transforms into the blood of Jesus. So the elements are transubstantiated into the blood and the body of Christ. Now, as Protestants rather than Catholics, we don't believe that this is what happens. We believe that the bread and the wine are powerful symbols of what has taken place, but it explains why that Catholic priest we were talking about who was traveling around preaching, getting wasted on the leftovers of the wine, it, it explains why he had to finish the wine. You couldn't just leave Jesus's blood just lying around or pour it out onto the dirt. That would be sacrilege to a Catholic priest who believes in transubstantiation. So we don't want to give too much time to that as it's something we don't believe, but it is important that you understand what it means because uh, that is an important belief that Catholics have that we simply do not share. So that is transubstantiation, probably the churchiest of churchy words we've ever talked about. Oh, definitely. So I think that's it, right? I don't know if we need to delve any more into communion. What do you, what does your church do? I, I, I'm, I would be fascinated. You can get in contact with us. Let us know on Instagram or Facebook. What does your church do for communion? Is there anything that's particularly great that you love? What do you call it? Do you call it Eucharist? The Lord's Supper? Do you call it coming to the table? Uh, do you call it breaking bread? I mean, I've been at churches in the last five years that have called them all of those things. So uh, I'd be interested to hear what you think. Um, Shred, do you have any last comments before we close? No, I think that we've covered quite a bit. Let us know if you have any questions. Yes. So that is communion. Next week, we're going to be asking the question, why Bible school with guest speaker, Steve Jantz. I'm very hoot. excited about that. He is the director of Miller College of the Bible, and it will be fun to have a conversation with him. He is uh, an energetic human being that we so appreciate. So that's it from us. Have a wonderful week, and we will speak to you very soon. Bye. Bye.